Bibles to 1 Samuel 9. We're going to actually be reading portions of 1 Samuel 9 and chapter 10. As you saw from the brief video bumper there, we're going to be looking at uh, the passage where Saul is chosen and anointed to be the first king of Israel. The theme of our series is Seeking After God's Own Heart. It's taken from 1 Samuel 13, 14. Uh, Saul actually will be eventually rejected as king for his disobedience and unfaithfulness. And God tells Samuel that he has sought a man after his own heart to be king. And what we learn through this series is is by God's grace, through the power of God's Spirit, we too can become people after God's own heart. And we're looking at various ways throughout the book that God works that grace into our hearts. This morning's focus in particular is seeking after God's heart through providence. Now, to kick things off, I want to give you the difference between sovereignty and providence. God's sovereignty is His absolute right and absolute power to rule absolutely. God's providence is His mercy and kindness to use His sovereignty in the best and wisest ways. There's a guy I've been reading, a scholar, uh, in order to prepare for these messages. His name is Dale Ralph Davis. And at the beginning of his comments on 1 Samuel 9 and 10, he actually gives us his own definition of providence. And I found it to be really encouraging and really helpful and very applicable to introduce the text this morning. I want you to put it up here on the screen. Dale Ralph Davis writes that God's providence is that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way God has of ruling His world and sustaining His people. And his doing it frequently, this is the best part, this is, this is the great setup for today's text. His doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. That's a great setup for the text before us. That's the definition of providence. Now let me give you a description of providence using my own life. Four words come to mind. Basketball. Friends. Fraternities. In Alabama. When I was 13... I was a competitive swimmer. would get up every morning at 4.30, swim several miles, sometimes with sweatshirts on, go to school, loved it. But for some reason, when I was 13, my passion changed. I can't explain it. I don't even know why. But my passion and my heart shifted from swimming to basketball. That happens to kids. No big deal. 
my life went on. When it was time to go to college, I could have played basketball at a small college, but I decided I'd rather stay in my hometown and go to Penn State. Every young person considers whether to go to college and where to go to college. No big deal. Just a decision I made. I had never even considered joining a fraternity at Penn State. But through a random bumping into a mere acquaintance from another town we used to live in, he invited me to come to his fraternity house. Didn't really think much about it. Thought I'd join it. I decided when I was 20 to try out for the Penn State basketball team. I was unsuccessful, but I'd gotten to know the players on the team, so for their first game, I was in the stands instead of in the locker room where I would have been had I made the team. I had no idea who they were playing, but Penn State was playing a group of Christian athletes called Athletes in Action. And after the game, when the other team, the Penn State team, was in the locker room, I was in the stands, and it was the first time in my entire life I heard the gospel. God used basketball to enable me to hear the gospel. I filled out a card, said I was curious. A guy came to my fraternity house and shared the gospel with me, and I put my hope and faith in the finished work of Christ. Unbeknownst to me, the guy who led me to Christ was in charge of the fraternity and sorority ministry at Penn State. That summer of 1981, I decided to go to a summer beach project with Campus Crusade for Christ, also known as Crew. By the way, Mark Long was on that same project, oh, those many, 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 many years ago. What I didn't know was Campus Crusade, or Crew, would take a bulk of their student leaders who were in the Greek system, fraternities and sororities, and send them to North Myrtle Beach. So because I randomly joined a fraternity, I was assigned to North Myrtle Beach, where there happened to be a bulk of the students from Auburn and Alabama. When I graduated from Penn State, I decided to join the campus ministry of Crew and was assigned to Florida State. Why? Because, again, my connection with the Greek system. Florida State had one of the largest fraternity and sorority networks in the country. While there, I worked with the gal who was working with the sororities. Her name was Laurie Kane, and she became my beloved bride. While I was at Florida State, one of those students that was at that summer beach project that fraternity and sorority people were sent to on North Myrtle Beach, who was a student at Alabama, I recruited him to become a fellow staff person with us at Florida State. Then Lori and I decided to move to Chicago, even though I was Presbyterian. I didn't want to go to a Presbyterian seminary. I wanted a broader education, so we went to Trinity Divinity School, and while there, since I was like the only Presbyterian, the token Presbyterian of that seminary, our denomination decided to plant a church in that area, and the church planter called me and said, hey, Bob, do you want to plant a church? I didn't really think much about it, but I said, sure, why not? 
And so we helped plant a church. And then when it was time for me to graduate, I sent a form letter to all the people that were on that summer beach project back in 1981 saying that I was interested in planting a church. One of those students from Alabama, who was also the same guy that I recruited to be with us on staff at Florida State, took my form letter to the Reverend Frank Barker at Briarwood. And 34 years ago this month, as a result of that entire parade of providence, Laurie and I were called to plant Oak Mountain Presbyterian Church. Now, all of those events and circumstances, they, they just seem to, to fall out and happen. But what I've come to learn is God was directing our steps at every turn. And guess what? God is directing all of your steps as well. God's providence works through the common stuff of our lives to change us and to propel us into our part in His story. And nowhere, perhaps, do we see this more clearly than in the details of 1 Samuel 9 and 10. There is so much ordinariness in this text that it seems like the Holy Spirit is going out of His way to present a whole bunch of random circumstances that cause God's providence to shine all the more gloriously. That's all standard of reverence for the Word of God. I'm going to skip around, so follow me. We're going to start in 1 Samuel 9, and we're going to read some verses, then I'll tell you where to go from there. This is God's Word. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah. But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he, the servant, said to him, Saul, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Now skip down to verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. 
He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Now go to chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come into the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. What a random text with a bunch of seemingly mundane details. That's the whole point that God wants us to get. This is God's Word. It is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative. He gave it to us because He loves us, and He wants us to understand His providence is always at work around us all the time to change us and to propel us into our part of his story. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, encourage your people today. God, convince every one of us you're in control and that you're working beautiful things in and through and around our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So the passage is clearly a narrative of all the wild circumstances that led to Saul being anointed as the first king of Israel. But make no mistake, what is being recorded here is not merely descriptive. God is wanting us to have the same assurance and affirmation that he is always at work in our lives as well. So we're to look to see how God's providence is doing three things. How it is 
and it is making the, the miraculous from the mundane. It is bringing fruit out of our fallenness, and it is pointing us to the sufficiency of signposts. First of all, trace God's providence through the miraculous of the mundane. I mean, as I read the text, I, I hope you were struck by the ordinary nature of all of the circumstances and events that God was bringing Saul through. I mean, we're introduced in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, we're introduced to a wealthy but relatively unremarkable family. We're introduced to a dad named Kish and a son named Saul. And then in verses 3 and 4, some donkeys wander off. That was common in that day. There weren't fences like we have today. And then the dad sends the son to find the donkeys. Nothing unusual or uncommon about that either. Then in verses 4 through 6, the, the search is a joke. It's a wild goose chase. And they're led from place to place to place, so much so that Saul is ready to give up. But then the servant and Saul have just an ordinary conversation. And the servant says, hey, there's a man of God here. Maybe we ought to check that out. And then in verse 15 to 17, we see God's commentary on what's really been going on. God really does use the mundane to accomplish the miraculous. And in verses 15 to 17, we learn that a whole lot more has been going on than we realize. That God has been using all of these normal, ordinary, mundane circumstances to accomplish a great divine purpose. All of the random events were not random at all but are being orchestrated by God to get Saul into the right place at the right time with the right person so that he would be changed, Israel would be changed, and they would have a king. And then we come to chapter 10. And Saul needs some assurance of who God has called him to be. And we have three ordinary men with ordinary resources. Three goats, three loaves, and a skin of wine. None of which are random, but all which are calculated to encourage Saul in his faith and to propel him into his part in God's story. You see, this is how God writes stories. This isn't just how God writes Saul's story. This is how God is writing your story. Most of life seems entirely unremarkable. And the remarkable thing about the Christian life is how God uses the unremarkable to accomplish the remarkable, the miraculous of the mundane. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus died when he was 33. We really pick up his life when he turned 30. That means we know almost nothing 
of 30 years of the life of the Son of God on earth. What that means is most of the life of Jesus was caught up in the ordinary, the mundane. And yet God was always at work in and around Jesus so that what appeared mundane was miraculous. Your life, I promise you, most of it is going to appear ordinary, mundane, normal. And that's how God writes the greatest stories. We don't get too liturgical here at Oak Mountain, although Advent tends to be a season where we get a little liturgical. If you know anything about the church calendar, there are various seasons of the church year. The church year begins with what's about to begin the last week in November, and that is the season of Advent. Then you have Christmas, then you have Epiphany, then you have Lent, then you have Easter, then you have Pentecost, and then you have the longest season of the church year. Guess what it's called? Ordinary time. There's different colors for different elements of the Christian year. Advent is blue. Christmas, Epiphany, and Easter are white. Lent is purple. Ordinary time, the longest season, is green for growth, for vitality, for vibrancy. Most of the growth and vitality and vibrancy for the Christian occurs in ordinary time. That's what's so beautiful about providence. When he uses the ordinary, it becomes extraordinary. Where does your life feel so ordinary right now? I wrote down some things. Taking kids to sports practice. Heading to the office day after day, week after week, year after year. Filling your car with gas. Dropping by the store for another load of groceries. Coming to church. Preparing meals. Everyday conversations that seem uneventful. A thousand choices a day. Will you trust? Will you wait? Will you hope? Will you expect? Small things. Uneventful things. Mundane things done slowly over a long period of time that's what God uses to change our lives that's what God uses to propel us into our part in his story trust providence trace providence through the miraculous of the mundane then secondly trace providence through the fruitfulness of fallenness If this passage is filled with the mundane and the normal and the ordinary, it is also littered with the brokenness that is the result of the fallenness 
of our world into sin. Runaway animals, frustrated searches, exposed weaknesses, spiritual failings. Every one of us doesn't go an hour, let alone a day, without facing the incredible brokenness of this fallen world. But guess what? The fallenness of this broken world and the brokenness of our fallen lives are the raw materials of God's providence, which He uses to produce fruitfulness in us, around us, and through us. The passage begins with the running away of some donkeys. They were lost. And then a fruitless search for days to try to find those donkeys. Things like that happen, right? Animals run away. Problems need to get fixed. Don't get solved. Work is by the sweat of the brow. Weeds grow. Cars break down. Supply chains get interrupted. Employees don't show up for work. Septic tanks back up. Diapers need changing as we walk out the door to come to church. Identities get stolen. Wallets get lost. There is a life filled with aggravations and frustrations. And what do we think? Really, God? Where are you? And it's so easy to forget that he's intimately acquainted and orchestrating all the affairs of our lives. Saul forgot. Look at verse 5 of chapter 9. Let's go back. Lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. It's easy to forget that the raw materials of providence through which God changes our lives and propels us into our part of the story is the brokenness and the fallenness of this world and our very lives. So the servant says, there's a man of God in this city. Perhaps he can tell us the way. And then we run into more fallenness and brokenness. The would-be king of Israel doesn't give any evidence of having any God-centeredness at all. Why didn't Saul seek after Samuel? How come there's no record of Saul even praying that God would lead them to the lost donkeys? And yet, God uses the fallenness of Saul's life to move him even further toward the purposes that God has written for him. See, not only is the world broken, we're broken. And yet our brokenness and our fallenness is the stuff God uses by his providence to lead us where he wants us to go and to become the people he wants us to become. Look at verse 16 of chapter 9. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. In other words, God is saying in verse 16 that he's, that he's orchestrating events through the mundane and the broken and the fallen because the cry of God's people for a king has reached his ears. Now, we read all about this in 1 Samuel 8. 
And in 1 Samuel 8, God tells Samuel that Israel's desire for a king is actually evidence of them rejecting God as king. In other words, the cry for a king is a cry of disobedience. The cry of a, for a king is a cry of rebellion. It's a cry of brokenness and fallenness. And yet, and yet, even in that cry of rebellion, God's mercy and compassion is kindled. And he is going to use their rebellious cry to stoop down in condescension because he's even woven our sinfulness, our fallenness, and our brokenness into the story. And he's woven your brokenness and my brokenness and your sin and my sin and the fallenness of the entire world into the raw material of his providence so that by his grace, through his mercy, and of his spirit, we will become the people he means us to become, and we will be propelled into the parts he's called us to play. You see, sometimes we really don't see how God can use fallenness, brokenness, and sin for our good and his glory. But all you need to do is go back to the gospel. Could there be anything more fallen and broken than a sinful world betraying, arresting, beating, and crucifying God in the flesh. The disciples had no idea how that could turn into anything good. And yet the greatest good the world has ever seen occurred through events that seemed random and cruel, yet Acts 2 tells us they were orchestrated through the providential predetermination of God. The cross is a reminder that God can take the most broken, the most fallen, the most sinful, the most rebellious, and through his providence, fashion it into the raw materials of fruitfulness. Where do you feel broken this morning? Where do you feel like a failure? <laughs> Forget about feeling like a failure. Where are you a failure? It's the raw material of God's providence in the mystery of his sovereign grace to change our lives, to impact others, and to propel us into our part in his story. Trace providence to the fruitfulness of fallenness, and then thirdly, trace providence to the sufficiency of signposts. We're sort of 
given a glance behind the curtain as God pulls it back for us in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 9. In verse 16, God shows up in Samuel's life. Because Samuel has no idea this is all going on. He has no idea that God's using lost donkeys in a fruitless search and uh, a, a not very spiritually mature Saul to, to lead him to a place where Samuel's going to be there to anoint him. So God tells him. God lets him in on what he's doing. He says, about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send you a man, and you shall anoint him. Part, the greatest part of God's providence through which he, he governs and, and leads and guides and sustains and protects his people is the Word of God. The, the providence of God giving and preserving his Word through fallen humanity is an act of providence that we should greatly rejoice in and take advantage of. We don't have visions like Samuel did, but we have the whole counsel of God. This is one of the greatest acts of providence that God has ever worked. Make use of it. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, we read that Samuel takes a flask of oil, pours it on Saul's head, and kisses him. Providences are often signposts of God's love, of God's kindness, of God's goodness, if we just have eyes to see. God wanted to affirm Saul that God was for him. And God used a kiss from Samuel to affirm Saul. Luther once called this table the Father's kiss. We too need signposts that remind us of our identity, that remind us that God is for us. And the table is one of those. And then, through a series of very ordinary, mundane signs, signs that God orchestrated so that Saul would see, wow, God's really in this. Two men by Rachel's tomb are going to say the donkeys are found. Three men with three gifts are going to come along and they're going to give you some food. Then you're going to meet a band of prophets and the Spirit of God's going to fall on you. Again, signs that authenticated to Saul that God was for him. And that's what happens at this table. This table is a signpost that if you know Christ, God is for you. And in verses 6 and 10 of chapter 10, we read God promises and these signs authenticate and affirm and assure that God would give Saul another heart, that he would be changed into another man. And through the providence of this signpost, the table, God promises as we partake repentantly, as we partake believingly, we too will be given another heart. We too will be given and changed into another person. Think about what, what is more mundane, what is more normal than bread? Jesus, on that day, was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Then after supper, he took cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the remission of sins of many. Drink from it, all of you, 
and give thanks. See, this is just normal bread. Ordinary. Ordinary fruit of the vine. Crushed grapes. And yet, consistent with providence, we see the miraculous of the mundane. Here's a picture of not only Christ's life, but our lives. The miraculous of the mundane. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now to set apart these elements from their common use. We understand they remain bread and the fruit of the vine. And yet we know by your grace and spirit and the promise of your word that they are signposts pointing us to Jesus, authenticating our interest in the gospel, and promising a new heart and changed lives. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.